Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Simul CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Stephanie Lahr. Dr. Lahr is the president of Artisite Inc., an innovative platform solution with the goal of bringing the joy back to medicine and reducing friction through the use of automation and AI. Prior to Artisite, Dr. Lahr served for six and a half years as the CIO and CMIO of Monument Health. She is an experienced informaticist and leader in the healthcare industry and serves on several boards and committees, including CHIME, the Epic Community Connect Steering Board, in which she was the previous chair, the South Dakota State HIE Board, AMDIS, and the United Way of the Black Hills. Dr. Lara is also an advocate and mentor for women in health IT and has shared her experience and advice on several podcasts and educational sessions. She holds a medical degree from the University of Texas Medical Branch, completed her residency in internal medicine, is board certified in internal medicine and clinical informatics, has completed the CHIME CIO bootcamp, and is a certified CHCIO. Dr. Lara, Stephanie, welcome to the show. So excited to be here. It's actually the first time I've heard myself introduced sort of on a, a scale like this as the president of Artisite. So it's kind of fun for me to even hear that. <laughs> That's right. It is fairly, fairly new. I'm, you know, honestly, you've had such an interesting and innovative career. In my head, it's one that truly defines making your own luck. Prior to getting into where you are now with Artisite and prior to the world of informatics, you were an internal medicine doc. And I'm really curious to start the conversation there. Like, What inspired that decision for you? Well, I mean, I, you know, if people ask a lot of the, oh, when did you know you wanted to be a doctor? It was somewhere after the time in high school where I thought dissecting frogs was utterly terrible and we should never do it. But before I started medical school several years later, <laughs> it was kind of, you know, one of those organic things. Internal medicine was probably interesting for me because it, it was everything. So I actually started off again. I, I probably I break a lot of the rules of traditional. I started off as an OBGYN resident after medical school and then I loved so much of it, particularly women's health. GYN oncology was a super amazing field to me. Those women are so sick and the doctors that take care of them really do amazing, amazing work. And there were lots of facets of it I loved, but there were some other pieces that I was like, well, I just don't know if this is the right fit. And so in my intern year, I said, I think I want to change residencies, which like nobody says, <laughs> you just don't do that. But I did. I, you know, I mean, I think a lot of it is throughout your path, staying true to yourself and deeply reflecting and going what fits and what doesn't. So internal medicine, you know, was really that space for me where I could do a little bit of everything, at least when it came to adults. And that's a pattern that I've kind of continued throughout my career to repeat is, how can I get my hands into lots of things where I can be helpful? And it's evolved now into this these new and different spaces. No, that's awesome. And I think it was during your residency, you were with UTMB and that was on Galveston, Texas, which is kind of the island there. Yes. And this was back 2007. There was a pretty devastating event that happened. It was Hurricane Ike. And I believe from some of the stories I've heard that hurricane really changed the path for you and on where you were headed. So I'm curious, what happened? Can you take us back then? Yeah. So you're I, right on on your on your history of the the storm Ike and the time frame. And it was it was, as you mentioned, devastating to the island. I personally had five feet of water in my own home. Um, we never actually moved into that home again. 
the the hospital system was physically devastated for many many months the island itself was without power and running water for weeks if not months and yet care needed to be delivered right and so we had to figure out what are we going to do and we had just happened to have gone live with it was an epic deployment in the kind of the 2005 time frame and it was that was it was as painful if not more painful to go through those things back then as it is now so much has been done to make those processes better and nobody had total love for exactly everything that was going on but after that hurricane within two weeks i was in a strip mall in texas city just on the other side of the causeway in an office essentially with a computer a fax machine and a phone and i was able to at that time without much real drama or intensity talk with patients i could see their records if they had been in the hospital recently if they had been in clinic recently it was i had a full understanding of what was going on and so while they were struggling with things like medications either not working because of the additional stress or that they didn't have them they didn't couldn't take them with them or that something was changing i was able to dig right in see what was happening help them come up with a new plan e-prescribe medications to wherever it was they were and for me it was a moment of like okay this you know for all the trials and tribulations of going through an implementation we can never go back i mean the paper literally still existed and it was underwater we wouldn't have been able to do any of that stuff so when i went into private practice after that I was interviewing actually at the hospital where I was a hospitalist for many years in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And I was meeting with the CEO and I said, hey, well, what EHR do you use? Because, you know, really this is where things are going and this is an important thing to me. And he just kind of looked at me like, seriously? Like you're a doctor who wants to talk to me about EHR? This, this has never happened to me before. And I said, well, you know, again, I think it's super important. And I also feel like as that work is being done, if we're involved, can't hurt. And that just is kind of what happened. And so I was working full-time as a hospitalist, but then got involved with the informatics and IT teams, mostly just because I thought, well, I can make my own life better. I can make my partner's lives better. And so we kind of just started down that path and it grew and grew. And then I said, oh, there's a whole field associated with this. Cool. I should educate myself. And then I got board certified and, you know, then ultimately it became more of my career than the clinical side. But it really all came out of that moment in Galveston where it was like defining that technology could take us places that paper never could. And we just had to figure out how to leverage it in the right ways. Wow. I, I love how you really just followed your curiosity there, Dr. Lerard, and just took you to so many new places. I had the pleasure of learning a lot from you watching you speak on panels at Lost Falls Chime Fall Forum. And there was a panel on telehealth. And you said something that, that I still remember. You said, you know, with telehealth, we we just took the clinic visit and added video. And maybe we need to reinvent the virtual visit from the ground up to get more adoption and value. And I'm curious over the last couple of years, and you've led a lot of telehealth initiatives at your previous health system. What, what limitations have you seen with how telemedicine is being done today? And, and if you could wave a magic wand, how might you redesign that virtual visit from the ground up? Yeah, this is this is a tricky question, right? I definitely am not saying I have the silver bullet solution to exactly how to do all that. Um, I think 
a, a lot of what I was saying that day in that comment, and I'll come back specifically to some things in telehealth, but was more broadly around this idea that I feel like sometimes we're trying to solve the wrong problem, right? So in telehealth, sometimes what were the conversations we were having were like, how do we have more telehealth visits? Is that the goal? I don't know. I, why do we want more telehealth visits? Or should we want less? What's really the problem we're trying to solve? And then if we're trying to solve it, if telehealth is a solution, perfect. There's a whole bunch of pieces that may need to go into what this looks like. We need payment reform and we need a whole bunch of things that would allow telehealth to be different than it is today, like a magic wand. Well, wouldn't it be awesome if, you know, while I'm at the gym and my knee is doing that weird thing that I can never quite reproduce, I could at that moment dial in to the office, whether it's the physician, the advanced practice provider, whoever it might be, and say, okay, I'm at the gym right now. It just happened. This is what's going on. I could like show them the situation. I could show them the equipment that I was working on. And in that real time, give them the sense of what's happening. I think that's what we're looking at for remote patient monitoring is we know people's lives are bigger than the office, whether we're bringing the office to them or whether they're coming to us, that's a contrived environment. And telehealth has an opportunity to allow us to understand a broader context. It's one of the reasons why in psychiatry, it's been so successful because it allows those clinicians as they're interacting with the patient to see them in their natural environment and take into account some of the things that are happening in that space. So, I mean, again, this is a whole hour long conversation around just specifically where could we be going? What reforms are necessary to do that? How do we have to revise the whole patient delivery mechanisms in order to do that? How do we incentivize that? All of that kind of stuff. But really the heart of what I was getting to in that comment was when we look at the challenges of success with telehealth, I think in some cases it was because we weren't transformational in our thought processes. And that's why I made this move that I know we're going to talk more about to Artisite because I, I know we've got to be transformational in our thinking. And it may take us lots of iterative steps to get there. Like I don't think it's going to be a magic wand kind of moment, but we've got to start with thinking about the context of the real problem we want to solve, not how we just make small tweaks to what we're already doing and thinking, oh, you know, great, that'll, that'll fix it. I think that's such a really powerful point. So, you know, when you were saying, hey, maybe we need to reinvent the virtual visit from the ground up, you know, what you weren't saying was, hey, how do we just make the clinical encounter incrementally better with technology or the visit better incrementally with virtual, you're saying, well, how do we reimagine the entire care delivery journey for the patient? And that might mean more technology. It might mean less. It might mean a different location. It might mean different reimbursement models. It's a whole thing that has to be reimagined. And technology is a tool for some of those things. I love that. that that's that's an awesome way of looking at it. And, and to your point, I, I love that comment around, well, what is the actual problem to be solved? And then figure the right solution, whether it's telehealth or some form of it or not. That makes a ton of sense to me. So Stephanie, you've actually shared in the past about AI, how it's kind of like working on the engine while flying the plane. 
Could you discuss the importance of physician engagement in the development and implementation of AI and one to two key strategies that you've acquired over your time to help foster that engagement? Yeah, well, so in healthcare, there's lots of problems we can solve and AI and automation can, again, to the point we were just talking about, is a tool that we may be able to use to solve some of those problems. And some of those need to involve clinicians and some of them don't. But when we talk about trying to fix problems at the clinical bedside, in care delivery, in clinical decision support, and those kinds of things, absolutely central to that is the inclusion of our clinicians. Just in the same way that with EHR development, what has made that better over time? Clinicians being involved, right? Doctors and nurses and therapists and whatever that got in and rolled up their sleeves and said, you know this is how our workflow is. It'd really be great if it did this. So when it comes to AI and automation, again, I think you need them. I think you need clinicians to help you define what is the problem for you? What is What can I help you do differently that then we could take those tools around machine learning, AI and automation and apply them? I think, so again, you can't solve those problems. I think foundationally can't even define them without including the people who they impact. The next piece, as far as, you know, kind of how do we make sure that we build in then the trust and where things go, is we need to start with problems that are probably less complicated and then build our way toward more complex problems. That does two things. One, it allows everybody to get comfortable with using a new kind of technology, a new way of workflow process in an incremental stepwise fashion. And it also allows us to build knowledge around how all of that happens. So, you know, as an example, at Artisite, the AI and automation journey that we're on with health systems is is not trying to cure cancer. It's not even trying to tell you which medication to choose between these two or three. Those are great problems for somebody to solve. They're big problems. And one of the things that we really have to focus on and that the clinicians are going to demand is an understanding. It can't be a black box. I have, I mean, chat GPT, super cool. The stuff that comes out of it is awesome. We're not going to go to chat GPT tomorrow and start saying, hey, what's the best treatment for XYZ disease? Because I don't know what information it used to tell me that answer. And so that's that black box. Like, I don't know, that answer seems pretty legit, but how did you get there? So if we start with things that are workflow-based on the clinical side, if it's how do I just take some of the documentation that you're doing and automate it? And here's how we do that. Here's how the algorithm learns. Here's what information it's using. Here's what information it's not using. Here's how we can, you know, bridge those things. Then we can one create the transparency around how it works and we also then reduce the risk profile that everyone feels in healthcare it's the reason why in healthcare when people say again like technology fail fast and iterate people in healthcare don't want to hear fail fast that to them means something bad maybe just happened to our patients it doesn't have to mean that if we start with the problems to solve in technology using technology that don't have implications for the patient themselves, but the context around the patient. And so again, automating things like documentation, 
Worst case scenario, if that documentation is incorrect and a part of the process is a human in the loop to go and do a second check, then we just go in and say, oh, well, throw that piece of data out. Just like when we first started integrating vital signs monitoring right into the EHR, people were like, well, I don't know, every once in a while that blood pressure cuff says something crazy. Okay, well, that's cool. We just have somebody take a look at it, right? And so we can we can do it in that iterative way, reducing the risk, start building people's confidence and building the understanding of what went into it, how we're developing it, avoiding the black box, as well as helping the technology really get better in making sure that we don't inadvertently create biases and things like that. That's something we're going to have to be really careful about in the use of AI. And while we're all really conscientious about it, it's going to take some time in order to make sure that we're taking all of the right steps to move in those directions of avoiding those pitfalls. And so again, we take low risk, simple problems, build, create, understand, iterate, and move on from there. And if we do it all with clinicians building that with us along the way and creating that transparency for them, I think it will be a win. Yeah, absolutely. As I say, I think that's such a smart, practical approach where you were saying, Dr. Lard, you know, start with the low risk, non-clinical workflow problems that we can use AI to solve and build trust with the clinicians about these sorts of AI tools and then move to uh, more challenging clinical issues at some point. You brought up a really good point about the black box. And I'm curious, because if we ever use more machine learning and predictive analytics to help with clinical care, at some point, there's always going to be a black box. And maybe we do explain to clinicians, well, here's what went into designing the model foundationally, even though it may not be totally explainable. But clinicians love to know why things work and how they work. Do you think we can overcome that barrier with just education about the fact that there will be a black box at some point and it's just something we have to deal with or, or how might we overcome that with clinicians who just love to know why things work and how they work? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll use a, a CT scanner as an example. When a CT scanner first came into our clinical spaces, even probably today, like every physician who goes to medical school comes out of medical school and training with a broad understanding of how a CAT scan works. We have specialized radiologists who actually can really dig in to CAT or MRIs or whatever and the real technology that's sitting behind it and going into it. So not every clinician is going to need the exact same understanding depending on how they're going to be interacting with those tools. The black box part of it, I think, is, again, where clinicians become uncomfortable is if you're going to modify my decision making, I need to know why that happened and how much weight to put on that versus something else. I think this is also going to be really key is no one that's doing automation and AI work in the clinical spaces that I know of is trying to automate the clinician out of this scenario. All we're trying to do is figure out how do we make them the best possible clinician they can be and have that synergistic you know, opportunity of better together than either entity on their own. 
And so in order for me to be better together with another person, well, I got to know some stuff about you. I got to know where you came from and what your education is and what does that mean? And I think that's the work that's going to have to happen with algorithms. It's not going to, not every person that goes to medical school or nursing school or whatever is going to need to have a deep understanding of, you know, the differences between machine learning, deep learning, AI algorithms, the, the depths of how they're all created. But we need to have enough clinical understanding, intuition, and technical understanding and intuition in order to be able to kind of get our heads around it. And then the other piece is we need the critical clinical decision making. And this is why I'll tell you a quick story in a minute. The human brain is still ultimately what we're trying to make actually work the best, right? Use all the best information you can. And so again, it will, I think if we can provide that recipe or, you know, the nutrition label or whatever it is we're talking about for what went into the AI. And we also suggest that here are the outputs, which are recommendations, thought provocations, those kinds of things, not like you must go do this. We'll build that confidence over time. And, and it may become a part of, you know, even medical school training. At, at one point, CAT scans were not a part of medical school training. Then they were. Right. And so now we'll have to morph our medical education systems to include some of those. A really quick story. Um, when I was a medical resident, there was a patient who she was pregnant. She came into the hospital. There were some really significant concerns about the echocardiogram that she had done as a part of her pregnancy because of some complications going all the way back to when she was born. There were some significant recommendations being made about her care plan and what should happen. And and I went, I was the, took lots of teams involved, right? I was one of the people on a team that went to go see her. And I talked with her and asked her lots of questions. And she had a toddler and she had all these other things. She was running, you know, so here's a pregnant woman running around after a toddler, trying to do all these things. And we've got this echo that says something really not good is going on here. That didn't make sense to me, right? Like, okay, I have really good, an echo is a great tool and it has pictures and it has all these things and I understand how it works, but something didn't add up with what was going on with her. My clinical intuition and knowledge said, if these, all these things were true, she should look like this. She should be having these symptoms and she's not like, what's going on here? The long and the short of it was after a couple of days of evaluation, investigation, and deep, like, digging out of records that were almost 30 years old, she'd had a heart surgery as a kid that we don't do anymore, and it changed her anatomy. And that echo was reflective of the truth, but it wasn't reflective of the whole picture of what was happening in her heart. So it was a great tool. It helped everyone. It still had impacts on where things went, but it was critical clinical decision-making alongside that technology that really got us to the answer of what was really happening with her. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm really conscientious about when we think about the use of AI or any other kind of technology in healthcare is it's a tool. That's all it is. It's supposed to make us better. And so we create the transparency and those things that we need. And then we do not give up our critical clinical decision making. We 
hold tight to that. In fact, we probably have to do even more to make sure people hold on to that knowledge because it's not just walking away, set it and forget it, let the technology take care of it. It's such a fascinating point. And it kind of things a good reminder that, like you're saying, clinical judgment is so important. And I think, I guess, as we more of these tools become available, we have to make sure that in medicine, we don't become complacent and we don't get left with a lot of clinicians who just want to just click the buttons and, and automate the decision making and just see more patients faster without making sure they're using their clinical judgment to, to do the right thing at every point in that, that episode. So I guess what's the final way to make sure we, we don't go down that path? Yeah. So I think the way to do that is to bring the right technology to the forefront. I saw this all the time. I mean, the EHR is, again, it's another good sort of conversation around this. I get, we all need an EHR. It is a repository for information that we all need. Information needs to get into it in order for us to be able to take it out for that patient, to be able to aggregate it, to help us understand more patients. It helps get the workflow progressed through various different care, parts of the care team. It's absolutely a tool that we need. However, the problem is as we've deployed EHR and other technologies in healthcare, over the last decade, we've done so at the expense of the clinician. We didn't transform anything. All we did was say, okay, well, now we need all this in a digital format. So, hey, clinician, go do it. And so I think one of the things that has happened is our clinicians, whether they know it or don't, have actually developed a, a sort of negativity around technology interactions and it's become almost black and white for them like some of the things I do in the EHR are a waste of time some of them that I do are not but the more and more you feel like the things that you're doing are a waste of time the more you generalize that to oh everything I do in the EHR or everything I do in whatever again this is not EHR bashing this is just analyzing the history of where we've come to and where we are I think we, as humans, we generalize things and now it's like, I shouldn't have to put in orders. Wait, I mean, the reality is one of the absolute most important things I do as a physician is write orders that are then carried out and executed by the rest of the team. The problem is the way that we've done that and how we've married it up with all of these other things that probably aren't super value added and aren't efficient and don't make the best use of the time causes clinicians to say, I just don't want to have anything to do with that. And I think that's, you know, that's the reason for some of the burnout and other things that, you know, that we're seeing. And so we have to own that as healthcare clinical technology leaders. We have to own that. The reality is we've done some really amazing things in the last decade. But there has been a cost to some of those things. And some of the collateral damage is the trust that our clinicians have that technology can really make their lives better because the reality is we haven't proven that to them. The awesome thing is technology is at a place today where we really can do that. The EHRs are doing a better job of that all the time, right? The partnerships between EHRs and some of the NLP language stuff that's happening there to reduce the burden. Like everybody's working on it because we know the technology is sophisticated enough to help do those things. It's going to be chipping away at that over time and building that trust back that, oh, technology can be 
my my ally and help me do the things I need to do that I think are one key element to having people not say, oh, well, you know, forget it. It's technology. I just don't want to have anything to do with it or just let the technology handle it because they were trying to replace me all along anyway, because that was never the, the thing. The other thing that I thought about a lot, and I don't have the exact right answer to this, but as we automate things, it is going to be really tricky. And I think about this like in the airline industry, right? The pilot at the end of the day still has to know how to manually land that plane. Because if all the instruments fail, that's the person is the one who's going to execute on that. And with all the technology that we bring in, it is easy to actually have people say like, well, I, I don't know how to take a manual blood pressure. I haven't done that in years. Like it was always... You stick the machine on and you turn it on. That's how you get a blood pressure. Well, like, well, you put a stethoscope on and pump up a cup and listen. Oh, really? Like, how, why would we do that? What does that even mean? Like, what's, what is a blood pressure, right? Like, all of those pieces are really fundamental and foundational. It's one of the things I worry about with, you know, major outages and downtimes of technology is do people still know how to do it a different way? Right. So these are these are not questions that have answers necessarily. They're just things that we all have to be super. If we're all really thoughtful about these things on the journey, then we'll do a better job of preparing for those scenarios and helping people work through those elements as opposed to getting a couple years down the line and realizing nobody, nobody, they've lost all their critical clinical decision making because they the technology is doing it all for them. If we keep it in mind that that's a piece that's important and we have to hold on to it, we will. I don't know exactly how we do all those things, but keeping it in our minds is probably the first point. Yeah, definitely. That's such an interesting point. It really speaks to the kind of iterative nature of technology where maybe we're solving one problem, but down the road, there could be other problems that arise because of that. I love what you were saying about making sure that we still know the fundamentals and how everything works. I was thinking about this the other day in the surgery world, there's the the new robots that everybody is being trained on. And, you know, hopefully we continue some of the manual processes in the education curriculum in case there is a problem like that, or in case the technology fails or, you know, so really fascinating discussion. I love that. You really have this ethos today, Dr. Lar, that's hashtag reduce the friction and hashtag bring the joy back to medicine. And you've really been pumping that for quite some time now. And it is so necessary today. And I think a lot of the progress that's been made over the last 30 years related to the EHR, the EHR optimization and patient engagement. However, like we're saying, the EHRs have maybe contributed quite significantly to clinician burnout and unnecessary friction. So in a way we solve one problem and then some other problems come up, but I think it is a cycle and we almost have to go through this to get out on the other side. And sure. with that in mind, we're reimagining how the whole healthcare delivery system could be processed from the ground up. And I think that's what Artisite has done. So I'm really curious, you know, what was the light bulb moment for Artisite and how did the genesis happen? Take us back then. Sure. So um, in June of 2021, I made a trip with our chief nursing officer at Monument to an innovation lab to hear from a couple of different companies that were doing things, non-traditional things in that sort of maybe in that patient room next, patient room of the future kind of space. 
and one of those companies was Artisite. And somebody said to me, like, Stephanie, I, I think you're going to be really excited about this, that, you know, this feels like potential game changer technology and it's for the benefit of the clinicians. And I was like, mm, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> and so I, I went into this this conversation and well, again, alongside our chief nursing officer, and as we heard kind of the premise of, of this whole idea of what if we could create a digital clinician, right? If we could do some of the things and have some of the behaviors and senses of a of a clinician, not to, again, get rid of them, automate them in some way, like, you know, in a car, the goal is to have no driver, but more just to make that driver be the best possible scenario. And I was like, okay, well, wow, this this seems really cool. And if this was just at the beginning of where we were starting to go with the workforce shortages, and if there is any kind of silver lining to the workforce shortages that we've had, I'm a silver lining kind of person. I'm always looking for the reason, like, what's the good that can come out of this? To me, the good that came out is coming out of that is for a long time, it was taboo to talk about automation in these spaces because everybody equated that to, oh, so you're trying to fire people. You're trying to reduce your overhead. You're trying to, you know, work with the smallest number of whatever it is possible. And the shortage totally removed that from the conversation. It was like, we don't have enough people. You name it, whether it's nurses, patient care techs, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, doctors, epic analysts, you know, whatever, revenue cycle team members. We suddenly didn't have enough of any of them. And it opened the door to conversations around automation where we didn't have to be quite so like, well, we we could maybe automate that for you and have people be like, whoa, you trying to take my job away? Like, nope, not trying to. Now we have people saying, oh, praise you. Like, thank you for taking some of this work because I'm doing four people's jobs right now. And if I'm going to do four people's jobs, something's got to give. Otherwise, I'm going to be the next person out the door. So that was some of what I was hearing from the Artisite team was, and again, it wasn't like, and at the end of the day, we're going to cure cancer. <laughs> it was like, at the end of the day, the nurses are going to have time to take care of the patients and talk with the physicians. And the OR is going to really understand what's happening at every moment of the day. And the leadership team isn't going to be point having dealing with the fact that everybody's pointing fingers. Oh, it's nursing's fault that we can't turn over the rooms. Oh, it's environmental services fault we can't turn. Like, now we have some data and it doesn't have to be about finger pointing. It's about process improvement. And that really was probably it for me was as I was listening to what the opportunity was, I thought, okay. So, I mean, broadly what Artisite is really is it's in the patient room space, it's leveraging cameras to be able to see it's leveraging speaker microphones to be able to hear and communicate. It's leveraging RFID, ultra-wideband kinds of RTLS technologies to know where things are in space. And we can then integrate with other systems to bring other kinds of information in. And if we bring all of that information in a setting, then we can start to understand and automate certain elements that might currently be being done by a person. So again, this it was like this cool idea of, 
okay, so here's an immediate use case. We can take a person who's sitting and watching 10 screens, looking, 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 looking to see if somebody's going to fall, put an algorithm on top of that, that is looking, looking, looking for them. And now I, as that one person, like change the ratio or don't. If you want to stay one to 10, fine, stay one to 10. You could probably go to one to 20. But at the end of the day, that person is way happier in their job because it's not as cognitively exhausting to be, you know, trying to just guess where something's going to happen. You've got technology assisting you in figuring out where do I need to look and how do I need to prioritize my work? Some of that area in, in nursing as well. But for me, as I was hearing those things, what I really heard was, hey, if we could see and hear and listen and understand what's happening in any kind of room in the hospital at any given point, it's like having a process improvement engineer, which no hospital ever has enough of, in every room, every day, 24-7. That's high fidelity, comprehensive, potentially, data that we've never been able to tap into before. And so for me, it was this combination of like, okay, so we can fix some stuff today and we can identify the problems of the future that we really need to solve and we'll grow into that over time. And so we started deploying it at Monument and my enthusiasm and excitement around what the real potential was here to finally not just kind of like this whole conversation started with telehealth, like, if all we're trying to do is take the clinic visit and put a camera in front of it, is that really the problem we were trying to solve? Let's throw this on its head and say, what are the tasks that need to get done in a day? How could we get those done in a different way than we're doing it today? And we're not going to, again, do zero to 100. So here's a way to start. Let's just let the nurses see into the room and work on aggregating their care in a different way by having that additional inputs, then we can layer on maybe a virtual nurse that can help partner with them to automate, not really automate, but at least offset some of the work of the bedside nurse and allow everybody to focus. And then we can layer on AI and take that work away from all of those people and allow them to, you know, to do more or to do better in the work that they're doing today. And I just thought, gosh, this this is where we need to go. This is the kind of thought-provoking transformational technology that's really going to allow us to take go where we need to go in the future, knowing that the workforce issues are, are going to stay a challenge. We have more and more people to take care of. And the data that we need to do a good job is only going to grow. And we need to be able to find better ways to capture and synthesize all of that information that we want to have rather than just saying, go click a box, go click a box, go click a box. That's not going to work. So I guess the rest is history. It was so exciting to me. I said, I'm going to jump in with both feet and become a part of it. So it's been a wild two months. <laughs> That's amazing. Can I ask you, when you're deploying something like Artist Site, do you kind of use that same stepwise framework that you mentioned earlier when we think about like AI, for example? So are you starting off with some low-hanging fruit use case to build trust with the frontline staff and then maybe at some point you layer on the more complicated yes. use cases 100 in fact we start with no ai at all right yeah. we start with a digital window and an ability to hear and be able to communicate into the room 
for the nurses that are already there, you know, in, in our patient room scenario, which is obviously the conversation we're having most with people. There's OR and there's clinic optimizations and things like that. But again, our inpatient censuses being so high and staffing being so short is where a lot of our customers are focused and putting their attention. And so that's the initial, right? Just give the nurses that are already there doing the work a different kind of tool. Get them used to what it's like to have, and patients, what it's like to have cameras and speakers and, you know, a different kind of interaction. And then let's build on it from there and put a, a virtual nurse into the mix. That way they can focus on documentation. They can focus on, you know, interactions with the patient, maybe on education or things that don't require in-person. And again, continue to build the trust of the team and m make minor modifications to the workflow all along. The cool thing in that is the work that the nurses are doing together in that virtual nursing space, the documentation and the little snippets in time where something happens, the AI is learning from that and going, oh, so that's what I've seen patient falls before, but now they said this about it, you know, or that that's what incentive spirometry is, right? Because without us helping it, an algorithm doesn't know anything, right? We've got to teach it. And that's one of the tricky things in healthcare is how do we teach algorithms what they need to know and still protect privacy, still keep the information, you know, housed locally, have expert people helping to modify and do the training. Well, if a nurse is clicking saying incentive spirometry was just done or I just turned the patient in bed or the bedside nurse just put in an IV, now we've got an expert saying that is what that actually looks like yeah. and the algorithm going, Okay, I get it. And so then as over time, we can start turning those algorithms on and offering to the hospital like, hey, if you don't want nursing to have to document these things anymore, we could automate that documentation for you. If you do want them to keep doing it, we could automate it into a holding space and you could have them just go in and validate it. Like there's all kinds of options there, but it is 100% that iterative process so that we can build trust modify workflows over time and then you know really start achieving uh, and and have gains from the very beginning right we can create wins in each of those steps and again that continues to then build the trust and the enthusiasm and that feeling of oh i'm so happy to be doing this work and you just took away my friction points so Hence the hashtags. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. And you've been doing this for a while as well. Like at Monument Health, I know you implemented AI just for fixing some of the faxing and documentation. And it truly was this iterative process of, okay, well, let's turn it on and we'll just QA it. We'll just make sure it's working as intended. And then it became slowly over time more automated. I think that's awesome. Really curious, Stephanie, like looking towards the future of Artisite, What's kind of your vision for where it could go? Does it extend beyond the hospital? Um, yeah, I think it I think it can, and I think it will. One of the things I as I think about hospital at home as an example, I as an internal medicine physician, I always practiced as a hospitalist, meaning I only took care of patients that were sick enough to be in the hospital. So if I was going to do that fifteen years from now in a hospital at home setting, right? My mind is constantly thinking about, wow, I mean, some of the things that we used to have to do, I'm 
trying to get my head around how how is that going to translate and how are we going to do that? The beautiful thing about bringing this kind of technology into spaces that we control today, the hospital, is again, it builds knowledge, it builds trust and experience on the side of our clinicians as well as the side of our patients. I mean, in order to do a really good hospital at home, we're probably going to need cameras in people's houses and speakers and all these kinds of things. And if we, one, don't have any knowledge or experience on the healthcare side with what to do and how to manage that information and what the workflows are on the hospital side where we've got more control over the environment, how do we expect people to be successful when we say, oh, you know, just beam in every once in a while? Like, (laughs) I don't even know what that means. Similarly with the patient, if we've never done any of this stuff when you've been actually in the hospital, then it's going to be even more awkward for them to be like, and now we just want to put a camera up at your house. It's fine. Trust us. It's not a big deal, right? Like if we've done this and learned this and improved upon it and created, again, understanding, knowledge, experience, and comfort in that space, then... We can move it into the home, translate all of that there. Yes, there will be some differences, but everyone will be in a better position to be able to manage that situation because we've already been doing it remotely. We've just been doing it remotely in a different kind of, you know, more controlled environment. So 100%, I think that is where I, you know, and and as a company, we see things going. It's not the focus right now. We got a lot of work to be done just helping our bedside caregivers that are working hard every day and that we need and want to stay in the practice and delivery of care to stay and do that. And for every single person that says, hey, this technology kept me in nursing, kept me as a respiratory therapist, kept me as a physician, like that's that's the win. And and I and those are wins that we are trying to get every day while we work toward what is this big picture transformational thing, which may mean sometime doing this at people's homes. That's really cool. Just being mindful of your time, let's flip over to what we call the fast five lightning round. So this is five questions to get to know you better. First question that we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Yeah. So this is a great question. It's a tricky one though, because like, I feel like it changes over time, right? So my favorite book right now. It's probably what I'm going to commit to. It's a healthcare book. It's called Upstream. I love that book and the story that it tells. It's about upstream thinking. It kind of goes way back to this, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And it starts off with, a. I won't tell the story, but it's a super cool analogy story around solving a problem that's in front of you and burning and churning through resources to do that versus taking the time to go upstream from that problem and saying, what's causing this problem down here? Maybe I should put some effort into fixing it up there. And I just think it's super important in healthcare right now because I think we do a lot of solving the problems right in front of us and we don't spend the effort going upstream from those problems and figuring out how do I prevent some of these things? And this gets really deep really quickly because healthcare is embedded in every single aspect of a person's life. And you could go back to, you know, prenatal care or education in elementary schools if you go far enough (laughs) upstream. But it's a great way of thinking. 
I love that. Really speaks to why you got into internal medicine as well. I think that's such a holistic view of thinking. Let's go upstream and figure out what the actual problems are. Sorry, little tangent. Question two, who is a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? Yeah, there's so many answers to this. I I don't know if this is going to sound weird or not. And maybe this is related to a book I recently read called The Dinner List. Uh, But uh, Audrey Hepburn, I just, she's such an iconic woman. And yet I, I believe that she was deeply complex and really for her, you know, at, at the time that she was living that I think there's so much to understand about her and to get to know about her. That's more than just, you know, the pretty face <laughs> that was on the, the movie picture screens that I, again, I, I just think it would be really intriguing to be able to understand what the world was like and how she maneuvered through it at the time that that she was that she was alive. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Question three: Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Oh, this one's totally easy. Definitely super speed. There's too many things I want to do, and if I could just be faster at getting everywhere then then definitely it would be that i do not want to be able to read people's minds <laughs> like that is a, an emotional weight that i do and psychological weight that i don't think i could bear so the strength eh, maybe but definitely speed yeah, i love that question four what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane Okay, I'm going to switch this question uh, and kind of say more like, what's something in medicine that people yeah. might not know or whatever? Th- yeah. This is kind of like Stephanie's helpful trick t- or hinge for the day. So uh, you may or may not know, but the sense of smell is actually tied more to memory yeah. than any other sense that people have. Yeah. And so, and it's not intuitive. Like people think, well, clearly vision and sight is what causes people to, you know, really comprehend and, and hold on to memories. It's not the case. Smells do the best job of drawing you back to whatever the situation was when something happened and is most powerful. That's it. So my hint and tidbit for the day is, and I started doing this quite a long time ago, but if you're going on... You have some big event planned, you're getting married, you're going on a big vacation or trip or something that is really momentous and you really want to hold on to it, find a smell to take with you, whether it's a perfume, whether it's, you know, a a citrus something to like tie in over and over. But whatever it is, have something that you're going to take with you for that specific thing it will forever be the best at taking you back to the memory of that day or that experience more so than pulling up pictures or anything else. So, that is I don't know ama- if that really yeah. answers it, but Man. that's a fun one I like to share I with you. I love that answer. I don't think most Try people that. know. Yeah, yeah. That is amazing advice. That is so cool. It could backfire. Maybe maybe it's a horrible yes. memory in time. Well, <laughs> and actually, that is true. Like, I'll be like, my husband loves scotch. Yeah. It smells like formaldehyde to me. <laughs> and I feel, I mean, not that I didn't like being in cadaver lab, but it's not something right. that I want to do on a Friday night is yeah. relive uh-huh. those experiences. And so 
the sense of smell is very strong. Very interesting. Yeah. And I, I think like with the sense of smell, like the human can distinguish like a million different scents, even the, even if they're closely related, you can still kind of tell them apart. Very yes. cool. I love that. Great advice too. So <laughs> last question that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why? There's always so many good options. The one I'm going to go with, I think would be if I could have been there maybe for the moon landing. Oh, cool. And the reason I'm going to say that is, so as a kid, uh, I wanted to be a fashion designer. That didn't pan out. I wanted to be a doctor. That one did. And I wanted to be an astronaut. Mm, In fact, I remember a conversation with my grandpa where he was like trying to figure out how to pull those three things together. I would love to travel to space, go to the moon, whatever. The reality is I'm a little afraid to do it. So if I could just transport myself back in time and be there on the moon landing, that feels like the safest way to have possibly done it. It also would have been the first time and super amazing to see kind of what happened at that point. And it's probably my best chance at getting to the moon, (laughs) given, you know, where I am in life. And so maybe I'll go with that one. I love that. That's so awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Lar, for coming on the show today. Really (laughs) really appreciate you taking the time. You can find Dr. Lar on Twitter, SJLar, I believe is the handle. And that's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient, hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter, at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and want to learn more, www.seamless.md. Dr. Lar, Stephanie, thank you so much again for sharing your time with us and really honestly sprinkling a lot of wisdom throughout the conversation. Oh, thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks so much.